Let's open up Revelation chapter 3. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. We looked last week at three of the seven letters of the churches the risen Jesus tasked John to write to in his revelation. That is four letters in total that we've read so far. In each, we've been enlivened to the spiritual battle taking place in our seemingly material and and mundane world. Like there, there are these false leaders and there's this uh, temptation to compromise to the world's ways and standards. But alongside those troubles in the spiritual battle is the promise of Jesus to aid us and reward us. This week we're going to finish out these letters to the churches. We're going to conclude this section of Revelation before jumping into that next section called Cosmic Battles. The same spiritual battle and threat of compromise is deepened and clarified in these final three letters to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But the promise of Jesus' help and reward remains for those who hear His voice and heed His words. Let's read together here. Chapter 3, verse 1. The verses will be on the screens. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy." The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so concludes the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Let's start where we began in our reading, to the church of Sardis, the one with spiritual authority over all the churches, who holds the seven stars in his hand. He sees their deeds. They have this public persona. They have this reputation that they've kind of been coasting on. They've been riding on the laurels of what they did in the past. But image means very little to Jesus. My family and I, we got away for a couple days this last week to an Airbnb. And I'll say that uh, the reality of that Airbnb looked very different than the images made it appear. You know, images on Airbnb may appear different in person than they appear on a website. And, you know, it's all this marketing and it's good angles and good lighting and kept out some of the negative stuff. But, you know, I'm standing in the reality of it versus the marketing. You know, reputation, you know, someone's past, what people say of them, it can be like this marketing. It's this image that's reflected and refracted through the view of somebody else. But Jesus doesn't need that. He doesn't look at our lives like an image that we portray. He doesn't look at us through the refraction of somebody else's perception of us. He can be there in person. You know, he can walk the grounds of our soul. He knows in detail where we actually are. In the case of Sardis, the veneer, of course, was great, not the reality. They are considered by Jesus in verse 1 to be dead. Jesus tells them in verse 3 to wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for your deeds are unfinished in the sight of my God. You know, it's like muscle atrophies. I haven't been running, I confess that, a couple weeks ago. November, December, I got sick, everyone got sick, we couldn't stop getting sick, and it just perpetual. I stopped running, I stopped working out, people are looking at me, they're saying, are you getting thinner? Everybody's saying, are you getting thinner? It's not a compliment, guys. Not a compliment, yes, I am wasting away, I have not began to work out. I didn't make any resolution, all right? And when you don't use muscle, it wastes away. You know, that, that's, a, that's a metaphor for our spiritual lives. You can think you're complacent, you're standing still. You're standing still, you're decaying in any relationship. You, if you're standing still, you're not moving anywhere. There's no momentum, there's no intent. It, it wastes away. That's like muscle. You don't use it, it dies. And if you don't use it at all. It can die to the point, the tissue can die to the point that there's no repair. There's nothing that can be built on any longer. So Jesus is warning this church. They're in danger of losing anything to build from spiritually. So what muscle was it that had atrophied? What was it that they had left unfinished in the sight of God? Well, Jesus appears to distinguish between those who have and have not soiled their clothes in Sardis. And it's not as if he's speaking literally here, you know, you spill a little church coffee on your clothing. You know, you made a mistake. We've all done that, right? Now, if you use that metaphor of like our faithfulness, our spirituality is like this white garment of following Jesus. They've stained that garment. They've soiled that garment by participation in the temple practices of their neighbors, of the city. They've engaged in immorality and idolatry of worshiping other gods. They used to stand for the name of Jesus. They're still writing on that reputation and former faithfulness, but now their witness for him, their voice for him has waned. 
Jesus says, wake up. Don't die. Strengthen what is still here and is about to die before it dies. Confess my name again. Stand for me again, and I will confess your name before my Father. Wake up. Wake up to the reality of what's going on. You know, often in the Bible, spiritual apathy and laziness is akin to spiritual death. They're either close cousins or they're practically the same reality. The two really aren't that far from each other. If you're spiritually apathetic or lazy, you might as well be spiritually dead. It's the same thing physically. If you're to physically sleep all day long, your existence, your, your presence in the world is as good as if you were dead. So there are people in this world that are physically awake but because they are spiritually asleep, they are as good as spiritually dead. That spiritual death for the residents of Sardis was this growing familiarity with the world. They were just starting to get by. They were just starting to blend in. They weren't standing out anymore, keeping a low profile, keep the peace in town. Recall what James says in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you want to blend in, if you want to fit in, if you don't want to take a different path, if you want to live based on the values that are just given to you in the predominant society around you, then you're basically becoming an enemy of God. You know, here they are, they're saying, you know, we don't want to stand out any longer, we just want to blend in, we don't want the persecution, we don't want the trouble, so we're just going to attend this stuff. We're going to keep our, you know, confession of who Jesus is and our worship of Him, you know, to ourselves. Well, they should also remember Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. It's the same promise as Revelation chapter 3. That's because it's the same person making the promise. It's, it's Jesus. He says, if, if you stand with me and if you stand for me and if you walk in my ways against the path of the world, I'm also going to name you. I'm going I'm to confess your name before my Father. Your name's not going to be taken out. It's going to be there in the book of life. But if you disown me, then I also will disown you. If you're ashamed of me, if you just want to fit in, why do we want to blend in with a crowd that we know is headed for destruction? Why do we want to join the world's queue and wait for our turn to walk off the cliff? Why do we fall into that spiritual malaise and stupor and just want to get by you know, one time I was snowboarding and I crashed. I'm telling you a lot of great stories about myself. I'm not physically fit anymore, and I crashed when I snowboard. I'm great at snowboarding. One time I went off this embankment, and I landed in, you know, multiple feet of snow. And I was exhausted, and I was kind of hurt. And I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, if you've been in a situation like that, I started to get comfortable. <laughs> I started to tell myself, wow, it'd be a lot easier if I just laid here for a while rested a bit, closed my eyes. I don't know if you've ever felt that temptation in a setting like that, like, oh, I'm actually kind of comforted, I'm comfortable. But that's the exact opposite of what you need to do in that situation. When you're buried in snow, off the path, you don't close your eyes and take a nap, okay? You got to wake up. And this is the statement of Jesus to the church of Sardis. It's the hand clap that's trying to get their attention to implore them to strengthen what remains before it dies. They need a fight for life again. Now, as we continue, we see the church of Philadelphia is said to be awake and alive in its own terms. 
The one who holds the key of David has placed an open door before them that no one can shut. Jesus is referencing Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15. In that passage, there's an individual named Eliakim who's said to be given the keys of David. He was made second in command under King Hezekiah. Basically, that individual had authority over God's people. Jesus is saying, I have authority over my people. The rulings that I make, the decisions that I make, nobody is going to overrule. Now, that's going to be a comfort for the Philadelphians because verse 8 implies they have little worldly strength and influence. They're being pushed to the margins in town. They're being bullied by the powers that be. God wants to remind them that they are following he who holds the keys, who has the authority. The, the door is open for them, and no one can exclude them, though they're being excluded in society. And, and this is kind of like a reference to that ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom, the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 21, verse 25, where it says the gates of the kingdom are always going to be open. Like that's the open access that God's people have to God as they are victorious. Now, why are the Philadelphians... Why them? Why are they one of the only two churches out of the seven letters to these churches? Why are they one of the only two that seems to have this like unfettered access and encouragement from God? What's so good about them? Now pay close attention to this because I think this is very important what Jesus affirms in them. Pay attention to this. See this. The Philadelphians are commended not because they're brilliant not because they're more capable than other churches, not because they have some secret spiritual sauce that the other Christians don't have access to, like, oh, they have better spiritual gifts and they speak in better prayer languages and they have more exuberant worship and their sermons are better and they have more knowledge, right? You know, they have more influence. No, it's none of those things. None of those things are they commended for. They are commended by Jesus amidst a lot of rebukes in these letters for doing two simple things in verse 8. You have kept my word and not denied my name. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Please don't overcomplicate what Jesus is asking of us in the book of Revelation. Please do not fall into a place of spiritual ADD with the signs and symbols and metaphors and wig out on all that stuff. <laughs> you know, like oh, wow, you know, all this could mean this and this could mean this, and if I crack the code, then I'm going to be victorious and Jesus will give me the reward. Like, there's a lot of interesting things that grab our attention in the book of Revelation, but the message to all the churches has been this message. It really is that simple. They've either been keeping his word or not keeping his word, meaning following what he says to do, following his commands, which is for their betterment, and keeping his name or shying away from it, saying that they're going to participate in the ways of the culture as well or remaining exclusively in devotion to him. It's not perfection that gets the rewards of all these churches that are described. It's not that they've never done anything wrong. Five out of the seven churches are being told change. And it's, it's the grace of Jesus to call them to change. And so it's not, it's not perfection, like they've done it all right, but it's those who have this active, living love of Jesus' word in his name. It's them who receive those rewards. It's that simple to understand, but apparently difficult to maintain. In response to this church's faithfulness, there are two unique blessings given 
which are not fully clear to us, okay? The message of Revelation, our application, very clear. The blessing that comes along with it for this specific church, a little bit confusing. Jesus says two things. In verse 9, first of all, the false synagogue of Satan will bow at their feet and see the love God has for them. And this other blessing, too, from verse 10, they will escape a trial that is about to befall all those who dwell on the earth, that is, all the common people who aren't believers. Regarding the first blessing of that synagogue of Satan turning, bowing at their feet, seeing that God loves them, it's akin to sort of a reversal that you might see in your high school reunion. You go to your high school reunion and that nerd that everybody marginalized and talked down to ended up becoming a wild success. You know, <laughs> everyone says, oh, you're not cool. You're not going to amount to anything. You're not in the in-group. And then they go off, and they're so successful, and all their successes dwarf everybody else at the reunion. See, that's essentially what's going to happen for you guys. You're the Christians, right? And you're getting marginalized, and you're getting pushed to the fringes, and you're getting picked on because you're the small guy by this synagogue. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago, what was going on there. There's competition, differences in belief. But that group, either in the near term, Jesus is saying, or certainly at least at the end of time, is going to see that they're actually the true Israel, made up of Jews and non-Jews because they placed their faith in Jesus in a reverse fulfillment of prophecies like that of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. In Isaiah 60, you've got this promise that one day the foreigners who are not part of God's people are going to recognize God among his people, and they're going to bow down at the feet of the people who are worshiping the one true God, and they're going to see that God loves them and that the blessing of God is upon them. So the Jews, like the synagogue, thought, oh, that's all the non-Jews, that's all the Gentiles. One day they're going to come and acknowledge God among us. But there's a reversal that's happening of Isaiah 60. They don't realize that it's their brethren from among the Jews as well as the non-Jews who place their faith in Jesus. They are the ones who are the true Israel all throughout the book of Revelation. And so the synagogue will one day bow down and realize the error of their ways. So the promise is for us. We will too one day be vindicated before anyone who would oppress us. And that's basically what Jesus is saying to them. You know, you're remaining faithful with me. You're victorious with me. And one day your opponents, they're going to see. They're going to see who they were opposing. They were opposing me. We too have that promise. If there's anyone who oppresses us for the name of Jesus, they too one day will see that God loves us and is with us. The second blessing to the Philadelphian faithful I mentioned earlier is that Jesus will keep them from the hour of trial that is about to fall upon the earth. Whether this refers to a disaster that was going to occur in a near term across Rome, or whether it refers to the trials of the final judgment that's spoken of in the later chapters of Revelation, whether you take it this way or that way, is really debatable. You know, it could be this, it could be that. But no matter your view, Jesus says they will be protected. What does that mean, that this church is going to be protected in those trials? Does that mean they're literally going to be taken out of the circumstances? Something bad's going to happen to everybody, but the Christians are not going to experience it? Does it mean they're going to be insulated from hardships that happen to the whole earth? Wouldn't we wish that that would be the case? That if we could just be good enough Christians, nothing bad would happen to us. I mean, that's what we could take from it. Oh, the Philadelphian church, because they're faithful, because they stand with Jesus. Things that are bad happen to other people, but the Christians, the true Christians, are the ones that nothing bad ever happens to. And if you were really walking with Jesus, nothing bad would ever happen to you either. Is that what the promise is? 
Consider what Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 15, right before the cross. He says, my prayer is not to the Father that you take them, that is my disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer isn't that you would take them out of the world, the place where all these trials and troubles exist. You know, Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of John, in this world you will have trouble. So Jesus isn't praying that we get removed from all the trouble and removed from all the trials and hardships. He's praying that we would be protected and kept safe from the evil one, from spiritual darkness in the midst of it. And to each church, it's the overcomers, the victorious, who like John, who's writing this revelation, share in the sufferings and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours as we go through the world and as we go through troubles in faith. Those are the ones who get rewarded. So you as a Christian can talk about future tribulations, future trouble. You can prepare for it. You can hope that through your faithfulness, you will be ultimately somehow protected from it. But newsflash to you, we are already in the midst of tribulations. We are already in the midst of some trouble and trials already. There, there were already tribulations for them. It was already difficult. I mean, look at what we're up against in the world. There are natural disasters, physical infirmity, biological death. These things are foreign in heaven. They're common in the world. There's spiritual compromise. There's persecution and martyrdom. There are global catastrophes, corrupt governments, famine, wars, plagues. And Christians around the world are subject to these things just as much as anyone else. So the protection that is offered to us is often not physical, like we have literal bulletproof armor against the bad stuff that goes on in the world, but what is afforded us is spiritual protection, spiritual armor, that even when we are poor in the world, in our trials and circumstances, we are rich spiritually, like the church of Smyrna is said to be. So I would say this promise to be kept in the hour of trial may or may not mean that they will literally escape the difficulties that were impending in Rome or impending in the last judgment. But if it doesn't mean that they're literally going to escape it, it at minimum means they will go through it in a different way. And that is true for us in all circumstances as Christians. The world goes through trials and difficulties and troubles and tribulations, but we don't have to experience it the same way the rest of the world experiences it. I hope you can look back on COVID and say, wow, because of my faith, because of my trust in God and because of my belief in the kingdom, I didn't have the same anxiety. I had access to a peace that surpassed understanding. I have hope beyond what's going on in this world for those who may be hopeless. You take something like death. That's a, that's a trial that befalls us all. Okay, There's a great reversal for death in the mind of a Christian versus anyone else. I mean, you can see this. It's on display. Pastor Brock knows this. You do a funeral for a non-Christian, it's weird. It's just ominous. You know, everyone like wants to be projecting like a false confidence, and there's a lot of well-wishing, but there isn't any true confidence. There isn't any certainty. There's just kind of like, let's throw out some things positive and sometimes not positive. <laughs> we, we can not really have the bounds all the time in those settings. And and it's sort of similar when you look at even like non-believers in, in a wedding ceremony. Sometimes that just seems so empty and frivolous where, you know, who do you get to do this wedding ceremony? You get the guy who's the funniest from my group of friends because he can speak in front of people. So he makes jokes for, you know, 15 minutes and now we're married. Like, 
there's no, there's no sense of like significance because it is whatever you're making it. Like, what is marriage? <laughs> what is it based in? Who cares? You know, it's, all right, get the guy to talk about himself. He's not even married. You know, it's like, but when it comes to a funeral, it's not just like frivolous. It, it's a void. So when we go through these things, we're kept safe. We're protected from the evil one. We go through these difficulties and trials but we hold on to hope. We are given strength in the midst of our grief. The rest of the world doesn't have that. It can't do anything in the trouble that befalls it except try to hold on to the life it has like pieces of sand falling between its fingers. Unfortunately, there are churches like Laodicea who also put their trust in the world and not the kingdom and so miss that blessing and protection. And yes, it is Laodicea the venerable Justin Choi from our congregation wrote me a message helping us understand that in the original Greek, it's pronounced Laodicea. So if you're from town, it's not Laodicea. It's like Nolens, you know, versus New Orleans. So everyone says Laodicea, but it's Laodicea if you're from town. If you know, you know, and now you know. So that's extra. Of Laodicea for all of us. Thank you, Justin. Jesus says in verse 15, they are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, and therefore they are in danger of being spit out of his mouth. Some of you are going, man, lukewarm is my favorite temperature of drink. What's wrong with lukewarm? You know, there's been some research on the water quality of the town having something to do with this rebuke, that there were hot springs in the other town, and there were cold springs in that town, and they had piped in dirty water, and, you know, Jesus is playing on that. I, I don't think that's it. I really think this is speaking about hospitality culture in the ancient world, where you know, if you were to present to a guest, an honored guest, a warm drink or a cold drink that shows intention, that shows care for your guests, where lukewarm is like, whatever, you're getting the lukewarm drink. And so Jesus is saying to this church, like, you guys, your life's a party, but you're not treating me like an honored guest at the ball. Laodicea itself was well-to-do, economically prosperous. It had a center for ophthalmology with renowned, you know, eye treatments. It had a booming textiles industry. Thus, you have the reverse that Jesus is speaking of, booming economics. He says, you're poor. Center for ophthalmology, you guys are blind. You know, oh, this center for textiles and, you know, massive industry. No, you guys are actually naked because the Christians there were resting on this false success, just like the people around them. Their wealth had become a trap of self-sufficiency. Sound like anywhere you know. Anywhere you've been from or anywhere that you live, wealth becoming a trap of self-sufficiency. Orange County. You know, all throughout the Bible, there are several teachings about the deceptive, seductive power of money. In Luke chapter 12, verse 19, there's a man whose ground yielded an abundant harvest. It wasn't even him, it was the ground. But he gets all this crops, all this wealth. And he goes, what am I going to do with all this extra? He goes, I'll fill up one barn. I'm going to build a second barn. And now what I get to do is I get to take it easy. I get to be merry and eat and drink. And then he died that day. So what's the lesson of that story? The lesson of that story is that wealth is deceptive. It keeps you from realizing ultimate reality. In his case, he forgot he was mortal. He thought that he could live forever and just have a great time. He didn't know there were bigger things going on. Okay? Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, he says, 
Money leads to dissatisfaction. Whoever loves money never has money enough. So if you love it and you want more of it, it doesn't matter how much you get because you're always going to want more anyway. You're never happy. Are we telling the story of Orange County right now? That here we've got all this excess and it lies to us so that we forget our ultimate reality and our mortality. We don't think about higher things. The fact that we have more than basically anyone else across the world and we're not satisfied, we're not content. With that wealth, Paul says, come many other self-inflicted wounds. 1 Timothy 6.10, some people, he says, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Like Jesus says, they gain the world and, and lose their soul. It can actually lead you to wander from the faith. You can betray God for the luxuries that are temporary in this world. All that to say, it is the grace of Jesus to let the Laodiceans know what they really look like, what he sees. Like when you tell me, man, you got a little something there in your teeth or here, you know, and they take care of that. Like it's, it's for my good that you tell me that, as, as offensive as that can be. It's for their good. That Jesus tells them what they can't see in themselves. He says, you are wretched, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. And if we could put on spiritual vision and traverse Orange County, man, those luxury cars are beaters. The designer clothing, it's rags. The mansions and the gated communities are spiritual shantytowns. Jesus says, spiritual wealth, Orange County, is not what you retain and keep for yourself it is what you give. So buy from me true gold, true wealth. Put on your clean garments. Put on those white garments to cover the nakedness of your soul. Put spiritual medicine on your eyes so you can finally see reality the way that it truly is. Guys, this is harsh language, right? Oh, man, all the letters here and throughout all of them. It, it feels harsh. It feels so strong. But all that language is put in perspective in this letter when Jesus says in verse 19, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. This is serious content in these letters. This was serious what we read today. Because yes, our eternal fate is serious. It's a serious matter that Jesus is treating seriously. There's some football games going on this afternoon. You ever watch a a football game with someone, and they're just so into it, and they cheer, they laugh, they jump up and down, they cry out, they cry, literal tears. You know, they're like ruined, they're depressed the whole week. If you were a Chargers fan, a couple of weeks ago, the saddest loss of all time, and you know, I like a good game. Um, I, I enjoy even more observing family members, I won't name names, who have this emotional roller coaster where they're so excited and pumped and everything in the whole world is going right, and then they're just absolutely crushed and ruined on the other side. This is an interesting aspect of American society. And when you watch people like that, you go, wow, you care about this a whole lot more than I do. You've made that evident. I mean, it's the same thing here in the letters to the churches. Jesus is demonstrating that he cares a whole lot more about our lives than many of us do. You know, it's a sad thing in America that, like, literally, that analogy of the game, there are a lot of people who can have more feelings and more reaction to a game they're not even involved in than they have to the actual circumstances of their life. 
the choices that they make, in the state of their relationships, they feel more things in the game than they feel in reality. But that's like just a metaphor for in general how someone can walk away from these letters to the churches and go, wow, this religious stuff, this stuff with Jesus, it's a little over the top, don't you think? And what Jesus is saying is, I care more. I care more about your life and your decisions and your fate then you care about those things. It's really not all that strange. It's really not all that obscure or weird or unclear. He's calling for devotion to his word and his commands, to his name. The outflow of this is love and grace, generosity. It's protection against you know, false gods that can actually produce nothing for you. It's protection against the wickedness and immorality of the world with the promise of eternal gracious reward. Jesus says, be earnest. Put your heart into this. Listen to me when I call and correct. Put your heart into it like I am. Don't fall asleep. Don't go down the path of destruction. Mean it. Care. Change. Repent. Don't think that this is the false discipline of some earthly individual. You know, sometimes when we read the rebuke and discipline of Jesus, instinctively you'll just connect that to an experience you had growing up. You know, the parent with the mental health issue or the alcoholism or the undealt with stress that they couldn't cope with and they took it out on you. And so now you view that in God, right? When he disciplines and rebukes you, you're like, la, 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 I can't handle this. Jesus doesn't have some stress that he needs to work out on you. He doesn't have some undiagnosed mental health condition. It is us who are struggling to deal with our stress. It is us who have a health condition that needs treatment. And he's knocking at the door like the Song of Solomon. It's a husband pursuing his bride. So Jesus is pursuing the church in love, saying, let me in. Come on in to me. And we're, the church, is having a tryst with the neighbors. Come home, Jesus says, and I'll let you in, and we'll be together, and I'll share with you my throne. That is everything that I have. I'll share everything that is God's with you if you'll join with me. So as we step back and reflect on these letters, these final three letters, I want us to walk away with a couple notes from this message that reiterate, I think, some key themes that have been built upon every single week but are really in view this week. Number one, remember that spiritual apathy is akin to spiritual death. You can't ride on reputation or momentum from the past. You know, if you're stopped, you're stopped. You're going backward. Standing still is not moving. It's decay. Like a muscle atrophies when it's not used, so if you're spiritually asleep, you're living as good as spiritually dead. Are you presently awake? Are you blending in and getting by and just riding out your time and the luxuries and comforts of this world? Are you wandering from the faith? You know, spiritual sleep is akin to spiritual death. Jesus is not asleep. That's what he's conveying in these letters. (laughs) Again, I care. I'm awake. I'm calling out. I'm giving you a chance. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Wake up. Open the door to his voice. Number two, for those who do open the door, for those who do listen and heed, the reward is for those who keep the word in the name of Jesus. It isn't complicated. There are some complicated things in the book of Revelation, but the main point in application for us is not complicated. It is simple to understand. He's asking us to keep his word and his commands, which are for our good, and his name, which is the only true name. That's the application of Revelation. That's going to be told a bunch of different ways. 
If you get this, you keep his word and you keep his name, you are living in line with a life that gets the rewards. Confess me. Stand with me. Don't be ashamed of my name in the culture. It doesn't matter what people are thinking about my name. Confess my name. I'm going to confess your name. Put on the white robe I gave you. Walk in my word. You know, the grace of Jesus is for us through faith in his work upon the cross. It's like he put this white robe on us, took the stained clothing, took the mess that we are. He gave us this white clothing. And we go and stain it all over again. He says, no, walk, love my word. Walk in my word. Walk in that white garment, that purity that I have for you. And he says he'll keep us safe in all trials. He'll help us overcome when we remain with him. And if we don't, remember this, Jesus disciplines and rebukes those he loves If you resist correction, if you just don't like it when someone tells you you're doing something wrong and you don't want to hear from anybody else, you want to chart out your own course, it's to your own loss. You know, I I don't know what it is. Like, we look at kids and we go, why can't these kids take correction and change their ways? What is wrong with them? They keep doing the same things over and over again. You don't worry about kids. Kids change. It's adults that have trouble changing. It's adults that resist correction more than anyone. And yet, that's what Jesus is calling out for. He's saying, get on my level. Care like I care. Know that I know better. He who has ears to hear, let him hear that discipline and rebuke. And Jesus is doing everything he can to get us to hear it. I want you to hear. I'm knocking at the door. I'm pursuing you. This ain't Sunday church before Sunday football. This is spiritual life and death, and that's why the stakes are so high. Be earnest. Put your heart into it. Change. And Jesus will meet with you. You know, after every single one of these messages for the last three weeks looking at these letters, the Spirit is speaking to the churches, and the church has an opportunity to listen. And so that's been where we've ended our time, by giving an opportunity for you to listen to hear what the Spirit is saying, I think that's been the appropriate response. You know, it's in line with that first vision that John got. John got that vision of Jesus, the risen Jesus, among the lampstand. He stood among the churches. He tended to the churches. He, in every letter, he sees their deeds. He knows what's going on. He walks the grounds of our character and our soul. And he can speak. He's not sitting back. He's not spiritually asleep. It's not that he doesn't care. He does care. He knocks at the door. He knocks at the door of our hearts of our lives. And if we would open and receive him, he'll come and be with us. So I want to leave this open space at the end of service as we pray a bit for you to hear the voice of Jesus. Maybe he's going to enliven something from this very message about spiritual apathy and blindness being awake, the atrophying of muscles. Maybe it's going to be the simplicity of carrying the name, carrying the word, living and walking in that white garment that he's given us. Maybe it's going to be that protection in the midst of trials. It doesn't always mean we avoid trouble, but it does mean we're kept safe from evil and the evil one. Maybe it's going to be rebuke and discipline, but know that it's out of love that Jesus rebukes and disciplines us who need to hear it. When we need to hear it, we need to hear it. It's not something he's working out that he lacks, It's us that lack, and it's He who offers us more. So let's enter a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I ask right now that 
just as you spoke to the churches thousands of years ago, so you're speaking to us. Thousands of years separate us and their circumstances, and yet nothing has changed. The things that you spoke over that culture, they still speak. They still grab our attention today. Lord, would you speak to my brothers and sisters what they need to hear? You're not passive. You're not leaning back. It's not that you don't care. You do. You pursue your church. Even when a church is so far off that you said they're, they're practically dead, you still called them to change. You still called them to turn to you. So, Lord, even people in here who think I'm as good as dead, you knock at the door and you give opportunity. So, Lord, would you speak? Would you speak your words in the hearts and minds of those who are gathered here this morning? Would you ask, would you ask for the Lord to speak to you? You would hear his voice and heed his words. Lord Jesus, would you help us to care about our lives the way that you care about our lives? And would you wake us up and help us see as we really are? Heavenly Father, even if we are poor and pitiful, you give us the invitation to trade all that emptiness for all your fullness, to gain true wealth. So Lord, let us be those who respond when you speak to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.